The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. This is the policy of the U.S. military that is being challenged through its constitutionality And we have two great guests that are going to talk about this. One is Aaron Kahn, who is a litigator, and he is the one who is on the trial team representing a major nonprofit organization, Log Cabin Republicans, in this high-profile lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the U.S. military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And also, we are going to be speaking with Mike Almy, who joined the U.S. Air Force in 1993 after graduating from Wright State University. And he also has been um, an officer, and we're going to tell you a little bit more about him, but he was discharged under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell back in 2006. So we have a fascinating show. So let me first tell you a little bit more about Aaron Kahn, who's our attorney. He's a litigator specializing in commercial litigation, trust and probate litigation, and white-collar internal investigations and defense. And he has represented clients in both state and federal court and multi-million dollar arbitrations. And he has done a tremendous amount of work with commercial fraud, unfair competition, false advertising, trust, probate, constitutional law. He's with a very large law firm of White and Case. And he has done significant work recently with the log cabin Republicans regarding the U.S. military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And during the two-week federal trial, which concluded in July of 2010, White and Case presented documentary evidence and testimony by experts and former servicemen and women, uh, all of which demonstrated that the policy does not further any of its asserted governmental purposes. And as part of the trial, Mr. Khan presented and examined several witnesses, including highly decorated and accomplished Air Force servicemen discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And that leads us to our wonderful other guest, Mike Almy. And I said that he had joined the U.S. Air Force in 1993 after graduating from Wright State University, where he earned his commission through Air Force ROTC as a distinguished graduate. He served a total of 13 years on active duty as a communications officer before he was discharged under Don't Ask, Don't Tell in 2006. In his last position in the Air Force, he led a team of nearly 200 men and women responsible for operating and maintaining the command and control systems 
used to control the airspace over Iraq. His discharge process lasted 16 months and started after the Air Force searched his private emails in Iraq. He was deployed to the Middle East four times during his career, supporting Operation Desert Fox, Operation Southern Watch, and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He has a master's degree from Webster University, and he's a graduate of Marine Corps University and Air University. His decorations include the Joint Commendations Medal, Air Force Commendation Medal, Humanitarian Service Medal, and the Operation Iraqi Freedom Campaign Medal. He was named Officer of the Quarter and Officer of the Year several times throughout his career, and in 2005, he was named Top Communications Officer for the Air Force in Europe. There is so much more I could tell about him, but I just want to say that he has been an advocate for repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell by testifying before the Senate Armed Services Committee and lobbying members of Congress, and he's spoken alongside Senators Lieberman and Levin when the bill to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell was introduced in the Senate. He's been interviewed on NPR, CNN, the Associated Press, the Rachel Maddow Show, Kathy Griffin's My Life on the D-List, and The Advocate. He also escorted Lady Gaga to the MTV Video Music Awards and spoke at the repeal rally that she held in Maine before the vote in the Senate. So we have two really wonderful guests who are movers and shakers, and we want to thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So thank first, you, Mari. Yeah, you are just terrific, guys. Mike, why don't you tell exactly what happened, how, how you were discharged? Okay. Sure. Um, well, you, you gave an excellent summary there um, in your introduction. Um, my unit, I was stationed in Germany at the time, and my unit deployed to Iraq from late 04 to early 05. Uh, at the time that I was there, the Air Force restricted all access to private emails, so Hotmail, Gmail, um, you know, AOL, whatever uh, an individual chooses to use for their personal emails. So we were given Air Force um, government email, government computer, um, to use primarily for work purposes, professional work purposes, obviously, and then as well as personal communications, morale communications to keep in touch with your loved ones. So while I was there in Iraq uh, to alleviate or help relieve the stress of a combat zone, I wrote personal emails to friends and family, uh, to someone that I had, had dated uh, in Germany, another Air Force officer. Um, <clears throat> No differently from, from any of my straight counterparts. Um, so in that sense, it was rather rather mundane. Uh, what happened after after I left, my, my unit rotated out of Iraq, and I thought I had deleted all my personal emails. Um, and these were inadvertently discovered um, in what appeared to be a routine search um, after I left Iraq. Uh, the, the individual who discovered these emails uh, proceeded to read them, go through them. They were obviously of a highly personal nature, and so he had no work-related purpose to, to search the, or read these emails. Raised it up the chain of command, um, the squadron commander there in Iraq, uh, during the height of the insurgency, ordered a search of, of my entire emails, over 500-plus 500, 500 emails. Um, and never, <clears throat> excuse me, he never bothered once to consult with a, a lawyer before the search was conducted as far as the legalities of it in light of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and, and potentially the Fourth Amendment as well. Um, so, so in Iraq, they searched, it was an open-ended, vague search to find whatever they could in my emails and to, to unearth those 
and to find whatever am, uh, whatever evidence was damaging to myself in light of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So that's kind of how it unfolded. And then these emails were forwarded from Iraq um, back to Germany, where I was stationed at the time, uh, to my commander. And so about six weeks later, I was called into his office, and this was completely unbeknownst to me at the time, obviously. Uh, the first thing he did was he read me the military's policy on homosexuality, um, basically the the legislation that Congress passed in 1993, the law that we know is Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And then he handed me this stack of emails and asked, how do I explain these? Um, and obviously I was completely dumbfounded because I just hmm. I wondered how in the heck he had got a hold of these in the first place. Um, I, I should pause and say that I was a communications officer. Um, and so as such, I knew what the system administrators were allowed to do and not do as far as searches. And I knew that system administrators in the Air Force are not allowed to search private emails they're, unless they're ordered to do so by you know, proper legal authority, uh, usually with an attorney involved. Um, <clears throat> and that was that was not the case here. So some, I, I was very puzzled as how they got a hold of them in the first place. My commander pressured me to make a statement. Um, you know, I, I think the Air Force had kind of come to the tacit acknowledgement that this search that they had conducted was certainly unethical, if not outright a violation of the, the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law itself. Um, and it would have made it much easier for them had I acknowledged the emails or had I, in fact, told them that I was gay, which I never did. Right, right. Um, so we went around. Well, they like, weren't like, supposed to ask and you weren't supposed to tell. Exactly. <laughs> and I, I maintain that to this day. That I, and, I, and as Aaron can testify, that I, I, I said that in the trial on, under oath. I, I never told. Um, the Air Force asked by searching my private emails. And so my commander and I went round and round for about 20 minutes, and I, I told him, I said, I'm not going to make a statement uh, until I talk to an attorney first. Right. And so I was relieved of my duties on the spot. I was fired right then and there, um, mm. leading nearly 200 men and women. So it just had a huge disruptive effect, a negative effect on my unit. It just created a lot of tension, a lot of confusion. It had a, a horrible effect on the the morale, the mission, uh, the unit cohesion. Did they tell what the reason was for your discharge? Not at all. No. That later that afternoon, my commander called a all the officers in my squadron together. He did an officers call. We had about maybe thirty, thirty-five officers in the squadron, and told them all. He said, "Major Almy has been relieved of his duties." Oh my gosh! Like they they would think surgical, that you did some crime or something. And no explanation. Obviously, he could not tell the nature of why I had been relieved of my duties. And so that just further added to the confusion in my squadron about what the heck happened. You know, they all, I was a good officer. They all liked me. We had a great team that we worked with. Um, we had just come back from a, a very successful deployment in Iraq. And so we were kind of riding the high, riding that wave there. And then, and then I was just fired abruptly like that. And so it, Well, you would think that they might think that you did something horrible. You, you committed some terrible crime or got oh, caught absolutely. with drugs People, or something. I, I heard all kinds of rumors. Some of the rumors were it was a drug issue or an alcohol issue right. or a fraternization issue. Or um, I was known for speaking my mind. Um, so people thought I had gotten into an argument with my commander and a disagreement, a professional disagreement, and he just fired me. Wow. Um, never once did I even come close to hearing any, anything that was remotely near the truth. And so that that was kind of how I was fired or how the whole process started. And then, and then as you stated in the introduction, it, uh, it drug on for 16 months. Hmm. Um, a few months later, my security clearance was suspended. 
Um, and I, I ended up filing an IG complaint on a three-star general just solely upon the security clearance issue because... What is an IG aware, complaint? You know, Pres- President Clinton and his administration, he signed an executive order saying that you cannot use sexual orientation right. as a discriminator in, in security clearances. And so I filed an IG complaint solely based upon that issue. Wait a second. What's an IG complaint? Oh, I'm sorry. It's an inspector general complaint. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And how, what what is that comprised of? Who does that go to? That is, uh, it's an independent, um, it, it's similar to the EEO as far as they investigate claims of wrongdoing or abuse of authority, abuse of power, right. um, that nature of things. Any Anytime there's a violation or perceived violation of a law or a commander abusing his authority, those matters are, are sometimes brought to the inspector general. And so that's what I did just based upon the security clearance issue. So, so what happened? You, you wrote this IG complaint saying that they went into your private emails and they violated the, um, the, the regulations that you had for, for uh, in, interfering with your private emails? Or what well, did you that, write? What the, exactly the did you say? The inspector general complaint that I filed was based upon my security clearance, um, them suspending my security clearance. I see. Um, and so that I... I I stated in my in my complaint there that they had violated this particular executive order um, that Clinton had signed, President Clinton had signed, saying that you could not use sexual orientation as a discriminator mm-hmm. in, in clearances. Um, that was the nature of my complaint. They they found a way to justify what they had done in, in, as part of uh, as part of my termination, my discharge from the military, and so. How the did they do that? How did they do that? Uh, they just said that it was part of the ongoing investigation under in light of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and they just kind of rolled it into that, um, into what was going on uh, with my discharge proceedings. So you started challenging the discharge proceedings. How long did you really challenge those? Uh, pretty much for 16 months. Uh, the entire time I was still on active duty, um, uh, I, they they terminated part of my pay as a result of the security clearance issue. Um, it, it drug on for 16 months, as I said. I wrote, I wrote to many congressmen and senators as well to try and get them involved. Um, I was a resident in Texas at the time, so I, I didn't get a whole lot of support from Republicans down there, hmm. obviously. Right. But I, I can say I, I wrote to several other um, politicians who I, whom I was not their constituent. Uh, Senator Feinstein and Senator Kennedy uh, both wrote letters on my behalf to the Air Force, and, and so I'm just I'm very grateful that I had other other politicians of that stature who who had no obligation to me as a constituent, you know, since I wasn't their constituent, who just felt so passionately about this inter- this issue that they intervened. Michael, I have another question. So, do you think that people? Or the people in your platoon did find out, right? And in, in your group, they did find out, and did anyone? Eventually, eventually, um, as part of my um, as part of my hearing or my trial within the Air Force, my administrative hearing, um, I had about two dozen of my former troops, some that worked directly for me, some peers, as well as some superior officers. I had them write um, letters on my behalf, um, basically stating to the Air Force why I should be retained. So the people that wrote letters for me, I disclosed the full nature of the investigation to them at that time as far as what was going going on and why I was being potentially thrown out of the Air Force. Um, some of these people were fairly conservative, some evangelical Christians. Um, you know, they kind of ran the gamut as far as their personal background. Without fail, they just all rallied around me. They wanted me back as their officer and their leader. 
they were horrified at how the Air Force was treating me and that they had searched my private emails, and they just thought it was absolute garbage. Oh, goodness. And and since then, I, I, I'd, I'd add that certainly since I've been out of the Air Force and over this last year or so since I've been in the media a fair amount and given a, a few interviews and people have seen my story a lot more, um, I've heard from a lot of people that I served with that were in my unit and have gotten nothing but encouragement and support and people that want to see this law overturned and, and to see me back in the military as an officer. Now, what happened to the other officer that you had a relationship with that you were writing these emails? Was he also discharged? Nothing happened to him because he was stationed back in Germany at the time. He was using his AOL account or whatever it was. He was using his personal email. Um, but there was enough information in, in his email that had they chosen to, they could have gone after him, but, but they did not. And do you think they went after you because it was not a private AOL account? Because you couldn't use, you said before, you couldn't have a private AOL account when you were over there. You had to use the military account, correct? Right. I think that's part of the reason. Um, I, I'm really not certain um, as far as what the motivations were, because I think I think they, in light of me never making a statement to the military that violated Donuts Don't Tell, um, I, I think there was enough there that had they wanted to, they could have easily dismissed my case and you know, maybe just kind of wag their finger at me and say, don't do that again. But they chose to pursue it and, and, and take it, obviously, to the extreme there where I was, I was terminated from the Air Force. My career ended. Um, I, I really I, I can't say what their motivation was. Maybe it was just people that wanted to uphold the law, the letter of the law, um, people that just have a, a natural or have a bias against gays serving in the military, maybe from a religious perspective or just from their own personal viewpoint, I, I really can't say. Or do you think just the fact that you were using the military email that they thought that maybe you were kind of snubbing your nose at them and saying, okay, even though there's don't ask, don't tell I'm using this. I mean, not that you did this, but I mean, sure. is that their yeah. own rationalization that, you know, it's like, it's, it's like in a private enterprise, if you write your own emails on your own private email account, it's different than writing emails from your company. Right. You know, I mean, it's that kind of an issue. Yeah, and that may have been some of their motivation since it was a government email. Um, maybe they felt they just had carte blanche to do whatever they, they wanted to do. That's that's one of the horrible things about the Don't Ask, Don't Tell law is that when people are thrown out, it's purely administrative. It's not a criminal matter. And so what that means is that the military can basically use whatever they find. You know, if they if they get testimony from someone else, um, hearsay, rumors, or personal emails, all of that is fair game wow. to throw someone out. And, and to include um, information from chaplains, um, doctors, lawyers, etc. All those have, in the past, have been used to throw service members out. Wow. Thankfully, that has changed now after the 45-day study that um, that Gates initiated this past spring, and that came out in March. He issued new guidelines, so now those are trusted conversations with lawyers, doctors, chaplains, nurses, mental health professionals. Yeah. So, so that is that is a step in the right direction, and so right. I, I definitely applaud the Pentagon for taking that move. Wow. And look at this wonderful decorated Air Force man that we're, you know, that we're losing. It's just amazing to me. We're going to come back to you in a minute, Mike. Let's let's hear a little bit from Aaron. Aaron, tell us about this don't ask, don't tell. What are the parameters of this? Uh, well, thanks, Mari. I, I'd be happy to tell you. I just wanted to, uh, because I know Mike's story, I just wanted to chime in. 
What he didn't tell you is that, and, and further shows the ridiculousness of the law, is that while he was in discharge proceedings, he was recommended for promotion. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> it's one of the more absurd facts of, of his case, not to make light of it, but it just shows the absurdity of, of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Absolutely absurd. And, um, and you know, someone who has uh, was decorated like you were and did uh, such great work and was in Iraq four times, you know, and then they want you to lie. <laughs> that, to me, just seems so ridiculous because... You know, here you are, this ethical, wonderful serviceman, and then you're supposed to lie. You know, don't ask, don't tell. You're yeah, supposed to lie. Yeah, very hard to don't ask, don't tell. It asks men and women to lie every day about who they are and sacrifice their integrity. Yes, it's and, and it just doesn't make any sense. So getting back to Aaron. Aaron, you are fighting for truth, truth justice, and the American way, aren't you? Uh, yeah, indeed. Indeed. <laughs> uh, Right now, we're just fighting to prove the unconstitutionality of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and, and fortunately, we were able to do that at the district court this past uh, September. Well, the trial was in July, and we got our favorable rulings in September and, and October. Uh, the district judge, uh, Judge Phillips out in Riverside, uh, in, declared Don't Ask, Don't Tell unconstitutional on the basis of uh, the Fifth Amendment, uh, substantive due process protections, and also the First Amendment, freedom of speech. and your right to petition your government for redress of grievances. Yeah, and then you want to tell what happened next? <laughs> sure. Well, what happened uh, is that we had asked, uh, our, our litigation has been going on for six years. Uh, so way back in 2004, we had asked for a finding that the, uh, that the law is unconstitutional and that if we were to receive that finding, uh, that an injunction should issue uh, preventing the, the military, the Defense Department from enforcing Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So uh, Judge Phillips entered that injunction, uh, and for eight days, as, as your listeners may have heard in the news, for eight days it was not being enforced because the Defense Department was abiding by the uh, federal court injunction. The, um, the and that me- and tell what that meant. That meant that if someone was signing up for service, that they could say, "I'm gay," right? Yeah, there was even some press about this. I think the military uh, may have issued a press release at one point saying that they would accept uh, openly gay or lesbian. Uh, recruits during uh, so long as they were otherwise eligible during that time. Uh, so you know, I I don't know the, the details of how, what it looked like on the ground, but uh, ostensibly the go- the government seemed to be complying or at least trying to comply with the injunction, which of course it it must. Right, uh, and during that but, time, were there people who came out? I mean, who th- those who were actually serving were they willing to come out and say, okay, now that this injunction is is in effect, I'm gay. Well, the the military also did, uh, from what I understand, did warn uh, service members that there is legal uncertainty, of course. This is uh, the the ruling of a district judge found on extensive evidence and after a long trial. But, of course, this goes to the Ninth Circuit. It wasn't clear whether the Obama administration would appeal. Uh, It could go further to the Supreme Court before, you know, a final decision on the constitutionality would be entered. We're confident that once the appellate court and the Supreme Court view the extensive trial record that we made uh, that they would agree with the district court. But nonetheless, the military warned service members, from what I understand, that there was uncertainty and they should be cautious in coming out during that period. Um, and so, I, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened on the ground uh, in, in various units around the world. Uh, and, and there is that, there is that it was wise for service members to exercise caution because of the nature of Right. Our legal system works. Right. Um, but for those eight days, 
that the military would not have been able to discharge someone had they told, uh, as far as as far as I'm concerned. Right, and then tell them what happened after those eight days. Right, so pretty immediately the government appealed uh, to the Ninth Circuit so that they could move for a stay pending appeal, uh, and we got a. Uh, what happens at the Ninth Circuit is there's a motions panel that's assigned every every month, and the motions panel is set in advance. Uh, and so uh, that is a, that's a motion that's not a full appeal. So it went to that set motions panel, and the motion. And it was panel, just based on on whether there should be an injunction or not, right? Well, right. So the application, the motion to the Ninth Circuit was to stay the injunction. There's there's a lot of double negatives in this discussion, <laughs> unfortunately, but. So uh, for those who aren't attorneys, tell what that means. <laughs> well, what means what it means is this: is that the the district judge told the government that it could not enforce "Don't Ask, Don't Tell." Right. The government then moved for the Ninth Circuit to stay that order, meaning that "Don't Ask, Don't Tell" could be enforced pending the appeal, um, which could take many months, and and if if not expedited, could take over a year. Um, so we, we fought that very hard, uh, two rounds of briefing to the Ninth Circuit. And in the end, in a 2-1 decision, uh, two, ju- two judges uh, granted the motion, meaning that they agreed that Don't Ask, Don't Tell could continue to be enforced, uh, otherwise, in other words, staying the injunction. Uh, but we received a dissent uh, from a member of the panel uh, who very wisely said that at a minimum, we should uh, cease all discharges under the policy, which Judge Phillips had also uh, ordered. And his, his point was, was that uh, if Don't Ask, Don't Tell is ultimately found unconstitutional by whichever appellate court last rules on it, um, any, any service members who would have been discharged during, that, during this period would be irreparably harmed. Right. Because they would have been kicked out. Right. Uh, and we thought that was quite a wise um, compromise, if you will. Uh, but nonetheless, he was in the minority, and so. But in light of in light of uh, the fact that we had at least one judge who was uh, interested in in suspending discharges, once we lost the stay motion, we decided to uh, apply to Justice Kennedy of the Supreme Court uh, to vacate that stay. Mm-hmm. And the way that works is that uh, we sit here in the Ninth Circuit. That's where the trial was. Uh, the Ninth Circuit comprises most of the Western states, the largest circuit. In the country, and every Supreme Court justice is responsible for one or two circuits uh, for these types of applications that where it's not a decision on the full merits of the case. Anyway, Justice Kennedy is our Ninth Circuit justice, and so applications go to him. Uh, so we applied to Justice Kennedy to vacate the stay, arguing that the uh, that the Ninth Circuit motions panel had failed to look at the evidence and realize the uh, irreparable harms that would that would come to the uh, service members who are being impacted by Don't Ask, Don't Tell every day. Right. We argued that they failed to consider the constitutional harms, the loss of free speech, uh, the loss of due process rights, and simply just looked at what the military was arguing would be the harm to it uh, in in granting the government's stay application. Uh, Justice Kennedy, it turns out, referred the application to the full uh, Supreme Court Justice Kagan recused, as we expected she would, hmm. and uh, the eight members of the court uh, denied our application. So, in other words, the Supreme Court upheld the Ninth Circuit and said that the injunction uh, would be stayed uh, to avoid the double negatives. It meant that Don't Ask, Don't Tell could continue to be enforced, and that's where we stand today. So, uh, unfortunately, Don't Ask, Don't Tell is still in effect, but the injunction still exists. 
And if we win on appeal on the merits, which is where we're at now, then it would, it would enter back into force. Um, and of course, we all hope we don't have to get there. We hope Congress does what it's supposed to do in, in the next couple weeks and months. And we hope President Obama signs the uh, certification that he would be required to sign under the law that's under consideration. And, uh, and, and don't ask until it would be repealed legislatively. And we wouldn't have to uh, go through the appellate process, but we're ready to do so if we need to. Right. So what do you think? I mean, you think that you have a good chance of having this repealed by Congress? Uh, that's very difficult to tell. I see, uh, I see the press reporting uh, that repeal is likely on one day and then the next day reporting that repeal is unlikely. Uh, Mike lives in D.C. He probably has a better handle on this than I do. I would say certainly after the last couple of days, it's, it's looking a little more positive. Um, I, I, I'm certainly not a, a betting man, so I couldn't give you a wager on that as far as what our percentages or our odds are. But I, I, I'd say we have a, a decent chance at repeal. Certainly with uh, we've had several Republican senators in the last few days that have, have voiced their support, um, as well as now Secretary Gates and uh, Admiral Mullen are urging the, the Senate to pass repeal during the lame duck session. Um, so I, I think we're certainly the momentum is on our side to push for repeal, and um, and the Pentagon has announced they're going to release their study a day early, so that will be due on on November 30th instead of the previously planned December 1st. And that while it one day does not sound significant in a nine-month-long study, it's largely significant in the legislative process because we the time the calendar. That is our limiting factor right now, is that the calendar during the lame duck session, because there's only so few days that the Senate can actually take up legislation. So this gives them another full day to receive the report, uh, digest the report. There will be some hearings uh, probably the first week of December. Um, I imagine some of the service chiefs will be called into that, um, but we're not sure yet who's going to be uh, testifying before the hearings. But that does give them another day to take that up. And uh, Senator Levin, Senator Lieberman, as well as several other key senators there are, are strongly pushing this forward. Um, as well as now, President Obama has started to get actively engaged in this process. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. By calling some of these senators and urging repeal during the lame duck. So. You know, I, I had a question about that. You know, when he ran for president, he ran... Um, you know, basically saying that he was going to try and get it repealed. The don't ask, don't tell, get repealed, if right. I remember correctly. Yeah. He was very vocal during the campaign on this issue, yeah. But what did he have to have the government, um, you know, oppose the, the you know, the repeal of that, basically, at the, I mean, at the... Uh, in the, in the courts, yeah. D didn't he? He didn't really have to do that, did he? Couldn't uh, he have Aaron, just let Aaron it be? Aaron would be better able to answer that. Yeah, than Aaron, I would. did he? Yeah. Have well, to? I mean, that's a great question, and and a lot of very uh, astute legal commentators, including I think Dean Chemerinsky from the University of Irvine Law School, has have written about this and right. what the presidential duty is to defend uh, laws that are on the book. Um, yeah, our view is that whether it's whether it's a duty or not. Uh, the, the administration did not have to defend this law as forcefully as it has. So, for instance, uh, we achieved the injunction on October 12th. The, the injunction went into force that day. The military complied with it that day, so they say. Uh, but over the next eight days, they complied. And the Antonio Stontel was not in effect for the first time in 17 years. 
And the, instead of allowing that to occur to happen and see whether the the sky started falling, which of course it didn't, right? Um, the government turned around and, and took two days before filing their appeal. They could have waited sixty days before appealing. So it they they lost an opportunity to to learn a very valuable lesson in in our, in our view. Um, and also, they didn't ask to have to ask for a stay pending appeal. They could have appealed uh, because they have. A, in light of some constitutional duty uh, to defend the laws that are on the books, but a stay was not is not required. So uh, it's hard to I, obviously I can't say what the motivations were of the government, but they certainly have been uh, fighting the, the Judge Phillips' opinion uh, and and injunction a lot harder than they needed to, it, even if there is this sort of duty. Uh, by the Justice Department to defend the laws that are on right. the Right. And, and what was their justification? There, there was some justification for doing that. What was that? Well, the alleged? military, they mm-hmm. submitted some uh, declaration by uh, uh, Dr. Stanley, I think, um, a military uh, undersecretary of defense. Uh, I might not have his title exactly right. Undersecretary uh, of defense for personnel. There you go. Yep. Uh, and, <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Uh, the and, a retired, and a retired Marine officer, General. Yeah. There you go. So uh, he he made he submitted they submitted a declaration uh, by the undersecretary uh, stating that if don't ask don't tell were uh, effectively repealed, which is what it, the injunction would do in in, in a, such a um, quick and uh, uh, immediate fashion that the military would be harmed irreparably, uh, and they need time to effect an orderly repeal, which is uh, supposedly what the December first study will tell them how to do. Uh, and the problem with that uh, is that none of that evidence was presented at trial, mm. even though the government had plenty of opportunity, every opportunity to present that evidence. And that actually gets into a little bit of the of the legal yes. twists and turns of the case. But yeah. uh, before trial started, there was one of the main issues was what level of constitutional scrutiny applies to Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Do we review it with the very deferential standard that's uh, used for most uh, legislative enactments, congressional enactments, called rational basis standard. Is it something more, m- much stricter, uh, which we would apply to, say, um, classifications based on race, which we call strict scrutiny? Or is it somewhere in the middle, which is called intermediate scrutiny? And and the court ruled that inter- intermediate scrutiny would apply. And that's on the basis of a, pre- a two-year, a 2008 uh, Ninth Circuit ruling. So the judge was on very firm ground there. And once uh, the judge uh, ruled that intermediate scrutiny would apply, it became uh, the, the the burden sort sort of shifted not not shifted but there became a burden on the government to produce some evidence that don't ask don't tell actually serves some government purpose right and that if it were to be um, repealed or if it were to not be enforced there would be some harm they had they would have ha- they had to show that it was necessary to further the purposes that for which it stated unit cohesion, morale. So it had the opportunity and it was on notice that it needed to present that evidence, and yet it chose not to. And that we can't really say why they defended it that way, uh, but they defended the law p- based purely on the legislative record from 1993 during its enactment. Um, but that's not enough. That wasn't enough, and, that, and the judge rightfully uh, held that Donald Trump is unconstitutional because, in part because the government presented no evidence that it actually furthers any of these purposes. So had they had they um, tried to present that evidence, I would imagine that the undersecretary's declaration and testimony 
would have been appropriate at that time. And since they didn't, uh, the court said this, uh, Judge Phillips uh, said this is sort of too little too late. Yeah. So when they introduced evidence at the appellate court, how is it that the appellate court didn't say, hey, you didn't introduce this before? Well, we argued that. Um, and <laughs> at, the, at the appellate court, you can't introduce evidence. You can, you can simply show the evidence that you introduced at the trial court. So they presented right. the same declaration oh. uh, from the undersecretary, and the appellate court seemed to lend it uh, a lot more Credence. weight, even yeah. though it wasn't presented at trial, uh, than Judge Phillips did. Huh. Now, Mike, you testified at trial, correct? I did, yes. Why don't you tell us about your testimony and what it was all like? <laughs> well, I, I kind of chuckle at that question um, from the standpoint of, of what the government, what their line of questioning was. Um, we did this during the deposition as well as during the trial. The government, the Justice Department, went through my entire military career and wanted to know where I showered and where I slept. Oh, goodness. <laughs> and, and I think this highlights the point that Aaron made just a few moments ago, that the government's argument has not changed in 17 years. Uh, they used the legislative history of this from 1993. They called no witnesses. They had no new evidence. So they're still using the same tired, stale arguments they used 17 years ago. Um, and I, it took a lot of restraint not to, not to scoff when I was there on the witness stand um, as they went through my entire career and just wanted to know how I showered. And Now, now obviously, you're, when... Was it you, Aaron, that put him on the witness stand? Yeah, I was lucky enough to uh, have Mike as one of my witnesses that I examined. All right, so you you went through about all of the accolades, right? All the good things, all the the campaign medals, the, the Freedom Campaign Medal, and all the medals that he was awarded. Of course, we went through the we we demonstrated to the court that Mike is representative of of uh, of the many service members who have been discharged. An exemplary career, right? Tons of medals uh, and accolades, and um, and that and and we also uh, helped to show the court through Mike's story that the discharge of service members who are such highly trained service members who are you know this country spent a fortune on on Mike, frankly, yeah, right to to train him and 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 put him in uh, in a position to succeed in Iraq in a, in a combat zone, and then discharged him and and uh, one of the most compelling things about uh, Mike's testimony is that we we had him introduce uh, all of the the letters that he referred to earlier uh, from his from from uh, officers above him in the chain of command and uh, and people who served under him, and we used those to show the court that contrary to what the government uh, was arguing that don't ask don't tell is necessary to further unit cohesion and morale and readiness, we showed that that Mike's discharge actually. Uh, impeded those interests. Uh, his unit, and this was, these were in the letters. We didn't have to rely on Mike's testimony. Oh, great. Um, the letters all from, from all of, from all of these people, uh, demonstrated that, that they needed him. They wanted him back, even though he was now sort of, he had now quote unquote told, even though he never told. I mean, he was even outed. Was out that he, yeah. was, uh, his sexual orientation out, people were still saying, we need him back in the service. Right. So, Mike, what kind of questions did they ask you? Um, they just, they, they really wanted to focus, as I said, on the shower issue, on on. on so what did they I ask slept. you about the shower? 
Uh, I'm sorry? What did they ask you about the shower? <laughs> did you take a shower every day? Are you clean? Uh, right. Did I wash behind my ears? Um, <laughs> no, they wanted to know whether I had a private shower, if it was like a what we call an open bay or a big wide open shower area. And, and I told the Justice Department, I said, in, in my 13 years time in the military, you know, I, I don't even know how many bases I've, I've been stationed at or visited, and four deployments to the Middle East, I saw very few what we would call those open bay or public showers. And the vast majority of them, including showers over in Iraq, are private showers. Um, and so I think, it, I think it really punched a hole there in the government's argument about the, the shower issue. <laughs> so they, they focused on that. Um, they had no – they didn't challenge me at all when I talked about uh, system administrators as far as searching emails. Um, they, they had no questions on that. Interestingly enough, Judge Phillips – uh, focused quite a bit of attention on that issue because I, I basically established myself as an expert in the in the eyes of the court because the system administrators worked for me. Um, so I was very familiar with their duties as what they could and couldn't do. And there were written policies, right? There are written policies put out by the um, communications professionals, IT professionals within the Air Force, and they even have a they even have a few lawyers within the Air Force that are assigned to handle communications issues, policy issues from a legal perspective, what they can and cannot do in light of Fourth Amendment issues. And so when they introduced, I mean, couldn't that have been thrown out there, Aaron, just the fact that they that they violated their own policy, they had no right to even collect it, he never really admitted, I, I guess you did argue this, but they, they didn't buy it, right? Well, we were, we were uh, I mean, Mike, Mike's situation is unique to, to his case. I should just, I suppose, back up and clarify the nature of our legal challenge. This, we were not representing Mike uh, individually. Right, right, I know. We were representing log cabin Republicans, and we were presenting a facial challenge where, in which we argued that the law is not not constitutional yeah. to anyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there have been some other challenges that were applied challenges in which you just look at how the law has been applied to that specific service member. So right, right. we weren't looking specifically at Mike's story in how it was applied to him right, right. necessarily for whether it was applied properly. What we were trying to show the court, and we, and Mike was uh, one of six former service members who we presented, uh, what we were trying to sh- show the court through all of their testimony is that in a broad cross-section of the military, the way Don't Ask, Don't Tell works serves to actually impede harm, unit cohesion, readiness, um, uh, good order and discipline, all of the yeah. all of the government interests that the statute says it furthers. Right, right. And, you know, just one point on the showers. I, I This is one of the facts that, you know, in, in working on this case for six years, I've learned a lot about the military. <laughs> and, learned a lot about how, showers. How work. <laughs> but one of the most amazing things I, I learned about is how the military discharges uh, service members with critical skills, such as Mike, such as, you know, others who, who we heard from, translators, uh, people who fly combat missions, what have you, doctors, lawyers. Mm. Um, you know, we, we discharge all these people, and in many occasions, the, those people are hired right back as contractors. Right. And they're paid three times <laughs> what they were paid in the military. Very true. Now, that would be one thing. Is if, that, has that happened to you, Mike, when you – are you – I am working as a, a defense contractor now in the IT sector, so doing a very similar line of work to what I did in the military. And in fact, I've been. And on you're projects. making more money. I, um, I'm making a little more than I did in the in the service. Um, and you don't have to put up with all the bureaucracy. 
<laughs> right. I, I have far less responsibility, um, more pay. I've even been your, your in life the is not in danger. Projects where I worked with some of my peers that I knew in the Air Force. So, oh yeah. goodness! But, but but here's here's the amazing thing about it. And, and wait a minute! And they paid for you to learn all that. So what what a waste! Yeah, they, yeah. The, the government, the the military, easily poured over a million dollars into my the cost of my career over thirteen years. Well, and plus four years of college, so seventeen years really. Oh my goodness! But yeah. but here but here's the amazing thing, they. So, so these service members are hired back as contractors at, at higher pay, but then they're sent. Not only are they sent to the Pentagon and, and office building uh, settings, uh, but they're sent right back to the bases that they served at before. Um, another one of my witnesses was uh, Anthony Laverti, who was an uh, enlisted man in the Air Force. He's in, I believe, he's in Iraq right now. He's been there recently, uh, serving on the same air base that he was serving at as an enlisted Air Force officer. Not only that. They, they, the contractors uh, and the enlisted men and, and and the current service members are not segregated from each other. Right. Right. They they actually use the same shower facilities and they and do. bathroom Correct. facilities. Yeah. Uh, so the whole notion of of questioning whether there's some sort of privacy interest that supports don't ask don't tell, even if there was that privacy interest, really fell away when we proved to, when we showed to the court that. You know, the, the, the military doesn't really care about that stuff anyway. They're letting contractors who are allowed to have openly gay and lesbian uh, employees use the same facilities. Oh, contractors, civilians, as well as um, members of our allied nations that are over in Iraq and Afghanistan who, who allow open service. And there's there's never been any issues with them serving right alongside the U.S. forces. That is so ri- ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. So... I, I, how did the log cabin Republicans really get into this case? Well, it's a, it's as I said, it's been a six-year litigation. Um, but uh, uh, it started in '04 because um, well, I have to go backwards even further. In 2003, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decided a case named uh, Lawrence v. Texas, and in that case, the uh, homosexual sodomy statute, criminal statute in Texas was being challenged as unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court in, uh, I think it was 6-3, Justice Kennedy writing the opinion, uh, overturned, well, in, ruled the, the statute unconstitutional, and he said there is a private, uh, there's a right to private consensual intimate activity under what, they, what the courts refer to as the substantive due process guarantee of the, of the Constitution. And, uh, but but the, the opinion, frankly, was not the clearest opinion ever written um, and it wasn't entirely clear to lawyers and, and really the rest of the judiciary how far that right went and what it meant. So, um, uh, but that was a big step for the Supreme Court. It actually had to overrule uh, a case that was not that old called Bowers versus Hardwick, in which a similar statute was upheld as, as constitutional. Anyway, in 2004, so we looked at uh, at what we could do with Lawrence. What, what's next? And it seemed to us natural that if there's a private if there's a right to private consensual intimate activity, then don't ask, don't tell would seem to clearly violate that right, since it requires discharge uh, by if someone engages in that exact activity. Uh, it also requires discharge if someone says that uh, says something that to the effect that they are homosexual or they're gay or lesbian uh, under the law, and that that's a free speech problem, obviously. So uh, we thought we thought that in light of Lawrence, we had a good chance of of um, of showing the unconstitutionality of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. So we filed suit in 04, 
and it went kind of slowly for about four years um, bef- until we got transferred. Our case actually got transferred to Judge Phillips, and she moved it along quite quickly, uh, such that I think in early '09 uh, we started appearing in front of her, and then uh, we ended up in trial in, in July of 2010. So, and it's fortunate uh, that we did, of course, because although we thought I think we could have won before, we had uh, we were helped with wonderful evidence. Uh, at the time of trial, because we had the commander-in-chief, uh, the secretary of defense, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff all saying that don't ask, don't tell actually impairs our national security. Right. And, and would they say how it did that? Well, Admiral Mullen has has given fantastic testimony on this that we believe, of course, is right on, and that uh, you know the, the military is an institution that preaches integrity, and yet don't ask, don't tell forces uh, Americans to lie about who they are to serve their country, right? Uh, and that and that doesn't breed, uh, 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 that doesn't help create a strong military. One of the interesting things that we learned throughout the trial, and and I sort of I think it's how the facts hit the ground here, is that what what the service members all all uh, testified to, including Mike, is that what, because of don't ask, don't tell, they can't talk about their lives. Right. They can't answer a question as simple as, what did you do this weekend? Right. Because it discloses potentially your significant other, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I, went to, I went to a movie. I would say I went to a movie with my wife. Right. Well, uh, a gay or lesbian service member can't answer that question. Right. And so it, it has the effect, and we proved this with all six of, all six of our service members spoke to this in one way or another. It, it, sh- it, it demonstrates to your fellow service members that maybe you're, not, you're holding something back. Maybe you're uh, not really to be trusted. So that really interferes with the unit cohesion. Well, exactly. And that's what we were able to prove. And that's what Judge Phillips recognized in her in her very well-reasoned 85-page opinion back in September, mm-hmm. um, that, th- that this is another reason why Don't Ask, Don't Tell is actually, uh, is actually harmful to our military and therefore doesn't survive the level of constitutional scrutiny required by Lawrence and the cases that have come down since Lawrence. Right, and I would think that interferes with morale if people can say, gee, you know, my significant other is hurting because I'm gone for so long, you know, or my spouse is hurting because, you know, you just can't share those intimate factors with your friends. That's that's right. I, I, one of the most compelling uh, pieces of testimony, other than, of course, Mike's uh, brilliant testimony, uh, was from my another one of my witnesses, Anthony Laverti, the, the gentleman who's in, in Iraq now as a contractor. And he was he um, his story is pretty fascinating as well. He used to he first worked in the Air Force in um, in laboratories, so a little more similar to a to a office setting or or you know a civilian laboratory setting. And he found it very hard to not talk about his personal life there because people, of course, sit around and and talk. Right. Um, so he thought it would be easier to serve under Don't Ask, Don't Tell if he were to enlist for uh, combat duty mm-hmm. because it would be more. You know, high, higher intensity and and less talking about personal lives. Right. So he uh, it did he did that, and he ended up uh, serving on uh, aircraft that flew combat missions over over Iraq, aircraft that had a crew of five or six individuals, I think. And uh, what happened was he found that that crew, because of the high intensity situation, actually the in, the instinct was to bond even more so, right, and talk about personal lives even more, and he couldn't do that. So as soon as they would land, he flew 61 combat missions in Iraq. As soon as they would land, he would ha- he would just take off Aww. so that he wouldn't have to answer these questions. Aww. And he got he be- he got the nickname 
uh, he started to be known as Vapor because he would just take off. And it was that experience, that work in the combat, in com, on combat duty, that caused him to realize that he could no longer serve under Dynast Dontel. Right. And and here here you have another example of a highly trained service member who left the military under under the policy. Uh, it it served it it actually served the opposite purpose of what it's intended. Oh, that is so sad. Oh my gosh, we are talking with two wonderful guests. We're talking about Don't Ask, Don't Tell. We're speaking with. Um, the attorney who actually argued the case, the high-profile lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of the U.S. military's Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy, and that is Aaron Kahn, who is with the law firm of White and Case. And we're also speaking with a wonderful guest, military-decorated um, Air Force and we are speaking with Michael Almy, and he testified in the case as well. And um, he was in the Air Force for 13 years and discharged under the Don't Ask, Don't Tell just because of some emails that he had written. You know, I wanted to ask you, Mike, um, when you did testify there, how is it that you even got into the case? White and Case reached out to me um, earlier this spring. I believe it was March, April time frame. Um, Back in March, I had testified in the Senate, uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee. They had had a hearing there, um, at, so I testified there at the invitation of uh, Senator Levin, the, the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, and I have done a couple other media interviews. Um, and so one of the attorneys there on, on the team had uh, had seen me or was familiar with my story, and she had reached out to me and then asked if I was interested in, uh, told me a little about the trial and asked if I was interested in participating as a witness. And uh, I said, absolutely. I didn't hesitate at all. And then that's how I got uh, got involved with the, the legal team there at White and & Case and then and worked, uh, obviously, specifically with Aaron um, since he was my lawyer during the trial. And um, so that's that's how it all unfolded. Yeah. Well, Aaron, so did you have any difficulty finding people to testify besides Michael? Well, you know, at that stage, uh, we, we, we were able to find uh, five wonderful service members uh, to testify. We obviously didn't want to present too many uh, because we had two weeks for the trial, uh, but we wanted to present the court with a good cross-section of experiences, so I've, I think we did that. Um, but we did have, you know, what, what was interesting about the case is that um, when we first filed it, Log Cabin, uh, one of the legal principles involved in the case is that in order for an organization to have standing to bring a federal claim, it needs to have members who it's, uh, who themselves have standing, uh, who are who are themselves injured by the by the policy. Right. Uh, and w- what was interesting, and we had uh, one of the former board members of Log Cabin testify to this at trial, was that it was difficult to get uh, Log Cabin members. Log Cabin does have many members who are in the military, but of course they don't want to disclose who they are. Oh. Uh, they don't want to use their name. Right. Because of course it could lead to discharge under donors. Right, themselves. so they'll just incriminate so, themselves in that yeah. way. Yeah, and so we actually uh, established standing by one through one gentleman who's a member of Log Cabin uh, named Alex Nicholson, who was discharged. He had already been discharged, so he could use his name. Um, but uh, we were in trying to find service members who were currently in the military. Of course, none wanted to use their name. So we uh, established standing using uh, a John Doe declaration of uh, a man who is in the military right now. He is still in the military. I believe he's reserves now, um, who's a member. 
but of course, we didn't, we didn't, we we couldn't have him come testify at trial, and we couldn't disclose his name. So we had a we had a um, we had another board member who knows who that person is testify about him. Uh, but of course, the government objected to the introduction of all this evidence, and it, it was it was a little disturbing. They wouldn't even agree to not discharge him if we were to reveal who he was. Oh, goodness. So uh, we, used, we used the fact that he was unable to attend the trial and, and, and participate using his real name as proof that Don't Ask, Don't Tell actually violates the First Amendment, both uh, the right to free speech and also your right to petition your government for redress of grievances. Oh, so and, that actually uh, turned out to be the, good. And the judge <laughs> found those, uh, that to be true in, in her order. You know, I just wanted to mention that you also had a woman testify, right? Jenny Kopstein? Yes, we had. That's right. Uh, Jenny uh, was a fantastic witness. She served in the Navy. Uh, again, trying to present the, the cross-section of experiences under Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, hers is another compelling one. She served in the Navy. She was on the USS Shiloh. And uh, she got to a point in her career where she no longer wanted to conceal her sexual uh, orientation. And uh, served for a significant period, I believe, two years and four months, uh, as a as a completely open uh, lesbian service member on on board ship. Uh, she was out to her captain, two captains. They they changed over at some point during her career, um, and they had no problem with it. They didn't initiate discharge proceedings. Uh, they in fact they trusted her. She was such a trusted member of the crew that she was selected. Uh, as well, she was officer of the deck uh, in the Navy, which is a, a significant honor. And she actually was ser- served as officer of the deck during 9/11 off the coast of California. Uh, and they were ready; they had guns loaded, ready to shoot down whatever uh, they were ordered to shoot down that day. And she was the one in charge of those guns. And, and so, how was, was it that she was, she was an, yeah. uh, an out lesbian, if you will? So, how was she discharged? Um, that's a good question. I have to remember that. I okay. think eventually they uh, they just because she served as Aaron said she served openly for two and a half years, nearly two right. and a half years, right. and eventually um, I think she had received a, uh, an assignment to her next duty location, and just eventually the personnel process caught up, and they realized that they were going to have to do something administratively under Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and that's how the the, the discharge process was initiated. And, but, um, yeah. and as, as Aaron highlighted, both of she had two. Captains, two Navy commanders, O6s, very senior officers that testified on her behalf, urging the Navy to retain her. Oh my goodness! This She's is... a, a Naval Academy graduate, just a tremendous, um, tremendous asset. She also testified uh, in the Senate Armed Services Hit Committee hearing uh, right alongside me, and uh, just is a very powerful and very moving story. Well, we are just about out of time. If you each could just say one last thing, because we're going to have to end. I think what we all want to happen is Congress to uh, to do their job and to repeal this unconstitutional law. Yeah, Michael, what do you say here? Uh, I would echo those remarks. We we have, uh, I think it's 24, 26 nations that now allow open service, and we are the last nation that has any military of any reputation that is holding on to this this archaic policy, and it's past time that it gets changed, hopefully through through the legislative process in the next few weeks. Well, you guys are totally wonderful people, and you're you're putting yourself out there for a great cause. And we thank you so much for all that you do, and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mari. Thank you. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. 
Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. And visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And write us an email about what's important to you about privacy in the information age. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.